Tonight we continue the series we started last Sunday night, The God of Second Chances. And tonight the lesson is called Lessons on Leaving the Lord. And if you don't have an outline, please feel free to get up and go get one in the back or up here at the front. Lessons on Leaving the Lord. You need to open your Bible to Jonah chapter 1. And for some of you, that's the first obstacle, isn't it? Where in the world is Jonah? How do you find Jonah? It's not an easy book to find, so let me give you a little hint. If you go to Matthew, that's pretty easy to find. Go to Matthew. And go over to the left, eight books. And they're short little books, so don't go too far, too quickly. Go to Matthew, go to the left, eight, and there's some outlines up here if you're, if you're out. Go to Matthew, go to the left, eight books, and you'll come to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, it'd be good if I had my Bible as well, don't you think? So, I might want to get that as well. Jonah chapter 1. One day in my personal devotions, I read a statement that really stood out to me. And here's what the statement said. Anytime God has access to his people, he can touch a world through that congregation. I believe there's a fill in the blank there for you. Anytime God has access to his people, he can touch a world through that congregation. When I saw that statement, I thought how true that is. All God needs is access to our lives. Henry Blackaby in the book Experiencing God tells the story of of a man named Thomas. Thomas was a Laotian refugee who gave God access to his life. And Thomas uh, went from, he started in his little town talking to the Laotian people that he knew and he, he led hundreds of people to faith in Christ. He started four different churches and he wept because he couldn't do more. All God needs is access to our lives. You see, lots of people just saw a Laotian refugee, but God saw a church planter and a soul winner. It's amazing what God can do in our lives if He just has access. In the book of Jonah, we have a similar story of what God can do through a singular person who will give God complete access to His life. Of course, the book records how an entire pagan city was one to to faith in God through the witness of one singular man. But the unique thing about Jonah, the unique thing about this book, was his reluctance to give God that access. His reluctance to allow God to have access to his life. Jonah, as you know, and as we will look at, resisted God. He rebelled against God. He ran from God, at least for a while. So let's pick up the story. Jonah chapter 1. Last week we studied Thursday first three verses of this book, and tonight we're going to focus on the rest of the chapter. Uh, I want to start by reading the entire chapter. Uh, There's only 17 verses in that chapter, and I ask you last Sunday night just to start reading through the book repeatedly, maybe every day for the week or something like that. And I timed myself, and I wasn't trying to read fast, I was just reading through the book. You can read the entire book. How many verses are in the book, do you remember? 48 verses. You can read the entire book in five minutes. Five minutes, you can read the book of Jonah. And so I want to encourage you tomorrow just to begin reading the book of Jonah. Five minutes, you're done. You can go and read something else if you like. And then maybe as you're reading, stop and jot some notes, jot some questions down, some observations. It might take a little bit more time than five minutes if you start writing things down. But become very, very familiar with this book. So we're going to read the first chapter again. It says, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. 
But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, and he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. That's where we left off last week. Now we pick up in verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid, and each carried out, uh, or each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. In terms of relating to God, how would you define the word commitment? Just, just If you had to give me a definition of commitment as it relates to God, how would you define the word commitment? I, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Submission. Thank you, Terry. How would you define commitment? That was a good one. Honor. Okay, that's good. Okay, very good. Dedication. Those are good words. Obedience. That's a good word. I, I, I wrote down two definitions. There's no fill in the blanks here, but, but I just wrote down two definitions that I kind of came up with of, of commitment. One is the unconditional surrender of my life to God. Unconditional surrender of my life to God. That's when I know I'm committed. This unconditional surrender of my life to God. No strings attached. No what ifs. No yeah but. No fine print in the clause at the bottom of the page. Unconditional surrender of my life to God. That's, that's commitment. Would you say amen to that? That's commitment, right? And then I came, with, came up with the second definition. A willingness to yield my life to His plan. A willingness to yield my life 
to His plan. Those kind of commitments do not come easily, do they? We see that especially in the life of Jonah. I'm going to rehearse something we've talked about a little bit last week, but I want you to see it perhaps in a little bit deeper context. I want to talk of the, look at the first two verses again, especially give you a little bit more information than I gave you last week about the city of Nineveh, because the city of Nineveh plays such an important part in the story of Jonah. In verses 1 and 2, we, we hear about Nineveh. And God simply said this in verse 2, Go to the, what's it called? The what? The great city of Nineveh. I preach against it because it's what? Wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh was one of the greatest cities in the world at that time. They were great in prestige. They were great in power. uh, They were great in position. And there's three hints in this text. Three times God calls them a great city. We just read one of them, chapter 1, verse 2. And in chapter 3, verse 2, look what it says. Chapter 3, verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh. And then in chapter 4, verse 11, look at that. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should Should I not be concerned about that great city? Now, I would submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, if God calls a city three times, that if he calls it a great city, I would submit to you it's a great city. Wouldn't you? So this is a, a great city, great in prestige, great in position, great in power. Now in chapter 4, verse 1, the verse I, I just read, how many people lived in this great city? 120,000 people. Now, in our day, that's, a, that's a, depending on where you live, that could be a, a large city. I looked up easily. Easily has around 21,000 people in it. I should have looked up Greenville to see how, back, how big that is. Of course, that's nothing compared to Los Angeles or New York. But in that day, in the biblical days, if you had 120,000 people living in a city, it was a large city. You didn't have the infrastructure that we have today to support such a large group of people. So if you had 120,000 people living in one location where water was scarce, then that was indeed a large city. In fact, chapter 3, verse 3, gives us an idea of the size of the city. Now, this, this is interesting. You read chapter 3, verse 3. Tell me how big the city is based on that verse. It takes three days to get across it. To go from one side to the other side, from one end to the other end. If you're walking, it takes three days. That's how big it was. In fact, historians tell us that the streets were 20 miles long. 20 miles long, and the walls of the city were 100 foot high. In fact, they said that the walls around Nineveh were so wide that three chariots could drive across the top of the walls side by side. That's how wide the walls were. Three chariots driving across the top. Nineveh was located in what we'd call the current day Iraq. But not only was this city great in prestige and power and position, this city was great in perversion. Look in chapter 2, verse 2. I'm sorry, not chapter 3, verse 2. Go to the great city and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, why did God want him to proclaim a message? Well, go back to chapter 1, verse 2, and you'll see. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And in chapter 3, verse 8, the king acknowledges how bad they are. The king of the city 
acknowledges how bad they are. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. The king is acknowledging. We're, we're bad people. This is, we're a perverted people. Now, Keith, where are you going with all this? Well, I got one final question before we kind of move off of Nineveh. Do you know how bad the city of Nineveh was? There is a book in the Old Testament that is devoted to explaining God's judgment against Nineveh. The entire book, it's three chapters long, the entire book, the whole story of that Old Testament book is judgment against one city, the city of Nineveh. Anybody want to guess what book it is? Nahum. Go over two books to the right. We're not going to read it, but I just wanted you to know where it is. Two books to the right. This is how wicked this city was. This is how bad this city was. The entire prophecy of this book was against the wickedness of the city and God's coming judgment on it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. An oracle concerning what? Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum. And then it says uh, in chapter 1, the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's all about Nineveh. It's all about Nineveh's wickedness and it's all about the judgment that God's going to bring on this city. And I want you to see how the city or, or how the the book ends. Chapter 3, verse 19. Look at how this book ends. It says, Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. This is God's prophecy against the city. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. By the way, once Nineveh was destroyed, it was never rebuilt. That's what it means, your injury is fatal. It was never rebuilt again. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. That's how much everybody else hates you. When people in the world hear that, that Nineveh's destroyed, everybody starts clapping. And then look what he says, and here's the reason. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Everybody in the world starts clapping when they hear of your downfall, when they hear of God's judgment. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Now you say, Keith, why did you spend so much time telling us about Nineveh? Well, here's why it's important that you know that. Number one, look on your notes. I want you to understand that God has a heart for wicked people. Put that on your notes. God has a heart for wicked people. God wants to extend His grace and His mercy to even the worst of people. It's obvious when you read the rest of the story, Jonah did not care about these people. Jonah hated these people. Jonah wanted nothing to do with these people. In fact, uh, uh, Allison reminded me of one commentator, I'd read this, one commentator said that it's possible that Jonah's own family had been killed by these people, the Ninevites, when they were coming through, sweeping through the land. He absolutely hated the Ninevites, hated everything about them. But God didn't. God loved them, even as wicked as they are. And may I say to you tonight, listen to me, church, listen to me. May I say to you tonight, God loves you too, regardless of the wickedness in your life. Absolutely loves you. Number two, 
to lay the foundation of the book, the second thing you need to know about that Nineveh teaches us, it's this. God does not write anyone off as hopeless. He doesn't write anyone off as hopeless. In fact, just the opposite. He went to great lengths to convince Jonah to go preach to these people that he considered hopeless. He went to great lengths to convince Jonah to go preach. You see... God's biggest problem was not the wicked Ninevites. God's biggest problem was his prophet. You understand what I'm saying? You see, God really does not have a problem with that lost mom or dad. They're they're really not too hard for God to handle. And, And that guy that you work with who cusses and drinks and likes to run around with women, he's not so far out there that God couldn't reach him. And that co-worker who's grown, who's grown cynical and cold and has all kinds of doubts about God and wonders if there even is a God, he's not beyond God's redemptive reach and God's love. Those people are not God's biggest problem. The people who are God's biggest problem are God's people who won't say anything to those people. Am I connecting with anybody? Oh, me or amen? You can say either one. God does not write anybody off. As hopeless, And when you start studying the city of Nineveh, you start to understand that in a fresh way. How wicked, how cruel, how, how hated they were. Everybody in the world hated them. Except God. Number three, Nineveh teaches one other thing about God. God takes sin and rebellion seriously. He said to Jonah... I want you to go to that city, that great city, and preach against it because their wickedness has come up before me. He's not going to overlook it. He takes it seriously. He takes it seriously in the city of of Nineveh, and he takes it seriously in Jonah as well. God takes our sin and rebellion seriously. By the way, before we, we move on to the text, let me kind of give you a timeline because some of you are probably sitting there thinking, okay, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I remember what's in the book of Jonah, there's a great revival in the city of Nineveh. But, but you're saying in, in, in Nahum that that book is about the downfall of, of Nineveh, the judgment of Nineveh. So how do those two things fit? Well, here's what happened. In the book of Jonah, God said, I, I want you to go speak to that city and against that city and share with them and and, and when he did, they repented, and there was a great revival in the entire city, the entire land. From king to the common person, great revival. About 150 years later, though, they fell back to their old, evil, cruel ways. And that's when Nahum came on the scene. About 150 years later, then God said, okay, that's it. And then they experienced God's judgment. Does that make sense? So God gave them a period of grace. God gave them the opportunity to respond. He gave them the opportunity to live for Him. But as I said in point number three, God takes sin and rebellion seriously. So eventually, He judged their wickedness. Now, let's get into the story. Lessons on leaving the Lord now that we understand who Nineveh is and why it was so important that Jonah go there. Let's pick up the story, and let me confess to you that as I get into the story, I may get all caught up in this and not give you every blank. 
I started not to even give you an outline tonight because I thought, it's just a story, and I just want to get into the story. But I know some of you, it's like, where's the outline? I don't see an outline. So I want to make sure that you had an outline, okay? So if I, if I get caught up in it and I forget to give you number three or the blank for this one, I will stay here until as long as I need to after the service to fill in your outline, okay? All right, now I'll try my best to get it all in there, but if I don't, uh, then you just come up and say, Pastor, we're praying for you. <laughs> all right, you ready? Lessons on leaving the Lord. Here, here we go, verse 3. God said in verse 2, Go to the city of Nineveh, the great city of Nineveh, preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And then the next two words in verse 3 are these. But Jonah. Did Jonah know what God told him to do? Yes. In fact, that was the reason he was running, right? Remember in chapter 4, we mentioned it last week, in chapter 4 he said, I knew you'd do this. I knew you'd be a gracious and compassionate God. That's why I took off. Because I didn't want the Ninevites to experience revival. I wanted them to go to hell. And so that's the reason I, I took off. Here we pick up the story, verse 3. But Jonah, even though God had told him to do this, even though God was in going to involve him in this great uh, evangelistic effort, but Jonah, you know, sometimes, sometimes I think when God's writing my story, he could use those same words, but Keith. I had something in store for him. I had something I wanted him to do. I had something I asked him to be involved in. But, Keith, I sometimes get in the way of God. How about you? I sometimes even run from God. I sometimes even run from what I know He wants me to do. And I can't explain that fully to you, except if you've experienced it, you know what it feels like, don't you? But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. Here's number one, lesson on leaving the Lord. Number one, God gives us room to run. God gives us room to run. You see, God's intervention in this story was not immediate. Jonah lived in a different place and he went down to Joppa. That took a while to get there. It wasn't just like, okay, I, I hopped in a taxi and I got there in just 15 minutes. No, it took a while to get from where he was down to Joppa. He lived near Jerusalem, and, and it took a while. If those of you who have been to Israel with me, you know it takes a while to get from Jerusalem to Joppa, even in an air-conditioned boat, uh, bus. And so if you're walking down to Joppa, it takes a while to get there. So, so it took him a while to get there. God gave him room to run. Then he got to the port and it took him a little while to find a ship going the direction he wanted to go. God gave him room to run. Then he got in the boat and he paid the fare. And he got down in the boat and they sailed for a while before the storm came. God gave him room to run. God's intervention is not always immediate. We can escape from God for a while. We can run from God for a while and it feels like everything's okay it feels like we're going to get away with it it feels like God doesn't care or God doesn't notice it's not immediate God gives us room 
to run. And we can escape to new jobs. And we can escape to new relationships. But at the end of it all, at the end of the running, we're faced with a simple truth. You can run from God for a while. But it's only, it's only for a while. God gives us room to run. And then number two, put this on your notes before we read the text. God's discipline will eventually follow your disobedience. He gives you room to run. He allows you to take off and do your own thing for a while. But God's discipline will eventually follow your disobedience. Look in verses 4 through 6. Then. That word then is very important. Then. After Jonah had run from the Lord. After God had given him time to run. Then. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Would you note in your Bible, the Lord sent this. Would you notice in your Bible, it was not an accidental storm. It was not a coincidental storm. It was not an, ac- it was not an average storm either. God, the Lord, sent the storm. Now, I told you that I was studying this book uh, a few weeks ago and really kind of got into it, and that's the reason I'm teaching it now. And in my study, this is my, one of my speaking Bibles, but in my study Bible, I begin to write on the page things that obey God. And on every chapter in the book of Jonah, there's only four chapters, but in every chapter in the book of Jonah, something or someone obeyed God. In chapter 1, the wind obeyed Him. The seas obeyed Him. And I'm going to tell you what happened in chapter 2, 3, and 4. But in every chapter, something or someone is obeying God. Except Jonah. Everybody's obeying God, or everything is obeying God. Except Jonah. But here's the point. God's discipline will eventually follow your disobedience. So let's read it. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. I'll stop there for just a moment. These sailors were so afraid, they did two things. Tell me what they are. Look in the text. What are the two things that these seasoned sailors did? All right, Each cried out to his own God. These were not worshipers of Yahweh God. These were not people who knew the true living God. These were probably Phoenician sailors, and they all had their own little idols. They all had their own little gods that they were worshiping, and they all started, you know, whenever you get in times of desperation, what do you do? You pray, right? And even if, if you don't know the real God, if you worship any kind of a God, the God of, of whatever, when you get into a bad situation, everybody starts praying to their own God. But they, they did more than pray. What else did they do? Threw the cargo overboard. Shows you the desperation of the situation. To lighten the ship. But Jonah, was Jonah praying? Yeah, Jonah was asleep. But Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said to him, what did he say to him? How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. 
We're up here, we're calling on our gods. It's not doing any good. So if you've got a different God that you can call on, get up out of that bed and call on your God. Maybe He will take notice of us and we will not perish. God's discipline will eventually follow your disobedience. Can I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, being disciplined is never fun. I don't remember a time when my mom and dad got the, well, especially my dad, but my mom usually got the switch. I never remember a time when mom got the switch or dad got the belt that it, it was fun. Just don't have that recollection. Now, I have many recollections of being, not as many as Dave and Larry. I was the good kid. They, they got it a lot. I was the good kid. I didn't get that many spankings or, or swippings and all that kind of thing. But whenever I did get one, I never said, I so enjoyed that. Why does God discipline us? Why did God send this storm? Listen to me very carefully. God disciplined Jonah. He sent the storm for the same reason you discipline your children. One, because they deserve it. Two, because you're trying to teach them something. Right? Look in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. Endure hardship as a discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. And so you might want to look at the storm that perhaps is in your life or came to your life it, it, it probably was a time of discipline. And here's what I want you to say about that storm. I want you to get to the point where you can thank God for the storm. I really, I want you to thank God for the storm. Because the storm is an indication that He loves you. The storm is an indication that He knows you. The storm is an indication that you're one of His. The storm is, is an indication. He's not pleased with you, but He hasn't given up on you either. Andy Stanley says the real reason God disciplines us is not to pay us back, but to bring us back. I love that. The real reason God disciplines us is not to pay us back, but to bring us back. That brings us to point number three. Running from the Lord results in painful circumstances. Put that on your notes. Running from the Lord results in painful circumstances. Here we go, verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. Now, before we go any further, let me just ask your personal opinion. Do you think that Jonah knew that the storm was because of his own disobedience and he was running from God? I think he does. I think he, I think he would have been clueless you know, if he didn't connect the dots there. All right, so Jonah probably, we, we don't have Scripture to support that, but Jonah more than likely understood. He probably had the hint, the idea, I am in big trouble. All right, so then the sailors said to each other, come let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. I wonder what Jonah was doing then. You know, why didn't he just lift his hand and say, it was me. He was quiet. Let's cast lots, the sailor said. Let's cast lots. See who's responsible for all of this. 
Jonah could have said, don't, don't worry about it. I, I got this one. But Jonah's just sitting there. Have you ever been to the point where you, you hope nobody finds out? Hmm? You hope nobody knows about your rebellion. And you're just playing it quiet for now. Come let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Surprise, surprise. The lot fell on Jonah. So they ask him, tell us. Now, I don't, I've studied this. I still don't understand this. Maybe you can help me with it. Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? The best I came up with was maybe they were saying, who in the world are you? The lot fell on him, so that's, that's the way they knew it was him. So why did they ask the question, tell us, who is responsible for making all of this trouble? I think they were trying to say, who in the world are you? And then it says, they had ask another question. What do you do? Well, I'm a preacher. You'll notice in the text he didn't answer that question. In just a moment, you'll see his answers. He did not answer that question. And I don't, I don't, I don't blame him. All right, let's see what else they ask. What was the next question? Where do you come from? Where do you come from? What was the next question? What is your country? And then from what people are you? They're just trying to figure out who is this guy? What, who is he that all of this would happen? You, you see? Verse 9. He answered, I'm a Hebrew. Oh, if they knew anything about Hebrews, they would know, okay, that means that he's a religious guy. And he worships this certain God. And so he explains, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. And then he says, I love this. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. You want to know who I am? I'm a Hebrew. And I'll tell you who I worship. I worship the God who made this, this sea that's so tore up right now. Then you understand verse 10. This terrified them. This terrified. Why did it terrify them? Tell me, why did it terrify them? Were they just terrified of the sea or was it something more than that? Huh? Yeah. It was not just that they were terrified of the sea, though they were terrified of the sea. That's why they ran down and said, how can you sleep through this? Why don't you get up and pray to your God? Then they discovered he worshipped the God who was God of everything and the God of the sea. And this terrified them. It's like, not only is he in trouble, we in trouble. Alright? And then they asked this great question. This terrified them and they asked, What have you done? In their mind, they're trying to process this. What, what have you done? Now, this next statement fascinates me. It's in parentheses. And I've looked at this for weeks now. They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Isn't that interesting? I don't really have anything to tell you about that except that, that it so intrigues me. They knew he was running away from the Lord because 
He had already told them so. When he got on the boat, hey, what you doing? What's your name? I'm, my name's Jonah. What you doing? Well, if you, if you really want to know, I'm running away from God. Okay, have a seat. Yeah, and he's, that's right. Yeah, you're running from God, okay, big deal, there's lots of gods. But then when the sea started churning, they became terrified. Now, let's see where we are. Um, That was number three. Here's what I wrote on my notes. You might want to write this down. There's no fill in the blank here. But under number three, running from the Lord results in painful circumstances. Here's what I put on my notes. You cannot disobey God without it costing you in some way. That's just a sentence you may or may not want to write down. You cannot disobey God without it costing you in some way. Then the next thing I want you to see is that not only does it cost you, but it's going to cost other people as well. Number four is this. When you run from God, your disobedience will often bring pain and loss to others. Fill in that blank. When you run from God, your disobedience will often bring pain and loss to others. Verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Now notice that the sea is getting worse. The storm is getting worse. It got so bad that they actually asked the question, what should we do to you to get things to calm down? Verse 12. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Remember I told you earlier, or I asked you earlier, do, do you think Jonah knew that he was guilty? Do, did you think, do you think that he knew that the storm was his fault? Here he tells us, doesn't he? Pick me up, throw me into the ocean, and here's the reason. Because it's my fault. I'm the reason you've got so many troubles right now. I'm the reason... Things are falling apart for you right now. I'm the reason. It's my fault. You see, when you run from God, your disobedience will often bring pain and loss to others. Not just to you. I've seen that so many times in pastoral ministry. How one decision not only affects you, but it affects your family. It affects your wife. It affects your husband. It affects your children. How you're running from God affects everybody else around you. They're drawn into your pain. They're drawn into your bad decisions. They're drawn into your turmoil. So he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. It's my fault. This great storm has come upon you. Now, I just got to pause there for a moment and just say that as I've studied this, I admire Jonah for doing this. I don't know if I could have done that. You know, I think if they'd said to me, well, what do we need to do to you so that we get this to calm down? I think I, I would have said, just pray for me. <laughs> you know, I'm running from God and you just pray for me. That's, that's what I need. I need all of you to pray for me. But that's not what Jonah said. Here's what Jonah said. And it's interesting. He said, here's what, here's what you need to do. Pick me up 
and throw me into the sea. I wonder why he didn't say, well, I'm going to jump in and everything's going to be good after that. It might be because he just couldn't bring himself to do it. He knew he was guilty, but he couldn't bring himself to jump in the water. So he said, here's what you need to do. Pick me up, throw me in, and everything will be okay. Instead, verse 13, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. Look at this. The sea grew even wilder than before. So we have a picture in chapter 1. This storm is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. So they're trying to go back to land, but they could not because the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord. Now wait a minute. Who's they? These pagan sailors. Now they're used to praying to God, so they decided to try to pray to His God. And here's what they prayed. O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. They knew if they throw him in the storm, he's done. O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then, then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Now, this is one of my favorite parts of chapter 1. Because in my mind, I can see the sea just getting worse and worse and worse. The storm getting worse and worse and worse. More violent, more violent. And the boat is creaking and, and it's about to break apart. And everything's just it's horrible. And the storm is just, it's just frightening. And, and they throw him into the water. And all of a sudden, it just calms down. And then they knew, didn't they? They knew not only was Jonah guilty, but they also knew that Jonah's God was real. You know why I said that? Because look what happened next. Verse 16, At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And right there on the boat, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. One of the questions I have that I have not been able to answer is, what did they sacrifice? Now, where did they get it? Unless it was part of the cargo. But they got something and they sacrificed it to the Lord and made vows to Him. They had seen something they had never seen before. And so they, they sacrificed to the Lord and made vows to Him. Number five, let me go into that. Uh, number five, the storms we encounter might be an indication. Uh, let's end on a positive note. The storms we encounter might be an indication that God is not through with you yet. You know why God sent the storm? Oh, it's to discipline him. Yes, it was to discipline him. But if you know the, the rest of the story, God was not through with him. God still had something he wanted to do through him. And an encouraging thing to me about this whole encounter is that Though Jonah was running away from God, heading toward Tarshish, out of the will of God, God still used him to bring a great revival to the city of Nineveh. Some of us think, I failed God to such an extent, He could never use me again. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The fact that the storm came in your life might just be evidence He's not through with you yet. And He's not trying to pay you back. He's trying to bring you back. Because He still has plans for you. 
So let's look at verse 17. But the Lord. Remember verse 3, it started out, but Jonah. Now in verse 17, we, we have another but. This time it's, but the Lord. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. You see, the but Jonah in verse 3 means, but, but he's against God, and he's running from God, and he's rebelling against God, and he's resisting God. But, but Jonah ran. But, but in verse 17, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. I was reading a book by Priscilla Shire, and she said, God provided a fish called grace. God provided a fish called grace. And we're going to pick up next week with that very statement. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. That's a good place to stop. Because listen to me, church, listen to me. When God saw Jonah jump into the water, he had every right to say, you got what you deserved. But God gave him what he didn't deserve. The Lord provided a fish to swallow Jonah, to spare his life, and also to spare his ministry that was to come. Isn't he gracious? Isn't he good? He, he is a wonderful God. God, we're grateful for what we've learned tonight. Continue to teach us. And especially next Sunday as we, as we start looking at Jonah inside the belly of the fish. God, help us to see that's more than just a children's story. But you're doing something amazing in that time in Jonah's life. And so we ask for wisdom, discernment as we're reading this week, as we're studying that book. May we hear your Holy Spirit teach us again. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.